4: You may actually be behind your destiny right now. Like maybe you're not on pace. In fact, I think most people watching this, listening will say, I am behind on achieving my destiny. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I feel like it's slipping. I feel like I'm behind. So you better figure out time differently. And you can bend and manipulate time to your advantage. And so I, about 25 years ago, went, I'm not the most talented. I'm not the smartest, and I'm really not. I don't come from, you know, a whole track record of success right? I don't have the perfect upbringing. How in the world am I going to win? I got to do things other people aren't willing to do, and I got to fix the way I look at time. And so my days now are from 6 a.m. to noon. That's a day. It's six hours. And in that day, some days you just chill. But in that day, I'm going to get the amount of productivity, faith, working out, fitness, money, business, you name it, in that day. We've all had a morning where we go, I got more done this morning than I have in weeks. Well, why can't you do that every morning? So I measure time. I've compressed and condensed time. I've bent it. My day is 6 a.m. to noon, and I'm not crazy. You're crazy for thinking it takes 24 hours, just like some dude in a cave did 300 years ago. And it's unfair that people have taught you this. My second day starts at noon and goes till 6 p.m. That's day two. But what the cool thing is, at the end of day one, this clock goes off about noon every day, bro, and goes, what did I just get done? What didn't I do? What do I need to be accountable for? What do I need to double my efforts? Just like you do at the end of most days, right? And then the next day is 6 p.m. to midnight. And some of those are just fun days. Sundays I chill, right? But some days they're really super productive. What I've done now is I have changed and manipulated time. I now get 21 days a week. Stack that up over a month, I'm gonna kick your butt. Stack it up over a year, you're toast. Stack it up over five years, my entire life is different than it would have been otherwise. And if you do this for about 90 of your traditional days that you think are, you will come back to me and go, that profoundly impacted my life. And here's the other thing that happens. The world responds to you differently when you value your time like that what is precious is valuable that's why a diamond or this watch is way more expensive than the piece of paper that's written down there because it's more scarce when your time when you interact with the world is slightly more scarce they respond to you as if you're more valuable so you get more accountability more more productivity more fun more joy and the world flips its response to you all of a sudden you become more valuable and precious to people when your time is different and you'll get thousands more days in your life and live a much more blissful and happy life than the person who only gets 24 hours.
2: What is it that you wanna do? Most of you aren't gonna know the answer to that.
5: The thing with excuses is sometimes they're very true, but it doesn't serve you, it doesn't serve your goal. So are you going to let it sit with you or are you gonna find a way around it?
2: You better be compelled to your core by the reason. You can become anything you want to become, but you're gonna to have to pay a heavy price to get there. You can be leading yourself down a destructive path. You need to pattern interrupt that. You've got to be thinking, what's gonna progress me towards my goal? So being concerned about my intellect is useful to a point, right? It makes me take things more seriously. It makes me go, hey, I'm not Elon Musk smart, so I'm gonna have to like work harder, work differently, surround myself with intelligent people. So it makes me do those things, but the second it becomes corrosive, and now I'm diminishing myself, that's where you have to pattern interrupt. It's
5: no surprise we've established what we're going to do in order to go for that goal. And in that comes the sacrifices. What are you willing to sacrifice? What are the things that you're okay with um, putting aside for now?
2: Don't prematurely optimize. Go experiment, go try things, go play around, go enjoy yourself, figure out what it is that you like. Nothing is ever going to be self-evident. When you find something that when you do it, you're like, ooh, this is fun, and you're actually energized by it, then you're going to go down the path of actually gaining skills in that. The more you engage with that, if that continues to be more fun, now it will become a fascination. Once something becomes a fascination, now we're going to really figure out if we can serve other people with that set of skills. If you can, you've got a hope of turning that into a passion. Passion is about acquiring enough skills at something that other people care about and you. You have to care about it first and foremost. But if you care about it and other people care about it, now you get into that reciprocal relationship where... And it could be playing the guitar, it could be playing video games, right? Think about somebody that's just an absolute God-tier gamer and other people will show up at a stadium to watch them play, they'll sit on Twitch for hours watching them play. So you're doing something that brings joy to other people. But they had to get freakishly good at that. They had to spend a lot of time improving their skill sets. They worked hard to gain a set of skills that allows them to serve not only themselves, but other people. That is the name of the game. The problem is people are expecting something to be self-evident. They are told a lie that they're born with a purpose. You're not born with a purpose. You're going to decide that this passion, this thing that you've worked your ass off to get good at, that allows you to serve not only yourself, but other people, that's now your purpose so when i was a quest my purpose was making sure that people had food that they could choose based on taste and it happened to be good for them at impact theory the goal is to give people a growth mindset at scale through stories so i'm just doing entertaining things but it's designed to help them get that right mindset that is my purpose it wasn't my purpose when i was 12 or 20 or even 30.
6: What's, what's most important for somebody to think about
2: you know, if they're in that kind of teeter-totter moment right now?
6: Yeah, I, I, I think that all of us are going through recovery and discovery at the same time. Recovery of things lost in the past, recovery of things lost and that we're challenged of in the present. But in the midst of recovery and discovery, let's not lose the beautiful moments that can happen now. And I think we got so caught up in the challenges that we didn't pay attention to the beauty of life. What I teach is that we all have um, what I call life interruptions. An interruption is, is a disturbance. You've had them, I've had them. It could be uh, when somebody's young and they get ill or their parents get divorced, or in this case, my father passed. So it's a life interruption. And then when most people have that life interruption or setback, they don't know how to get out of it. And so that's one thing that I think created a calling in me that I wanted to help more people that had life interruptions find a way up and out. So when somebody has a setback, what happens to them, most times they go very singular, they go really inward. So if they go through a divorce, they go very inward or they lost their job, they go inward, anxiety, or depression, pandemic that go very inward. But when you have a setback, the first thing you got to do is you got to become awake. You got to become conscious and you got to say, oh my gosh, we're in the middle of a pandemic and we may need to be locked down for a month. A month turned into another month and then over a year, right? So number one, become awake. Secondly, you have to take inventory. Where am I financially? Where am I with my job? Where am I with my mental health? How is my family doing? How's my country doing? How's this world doing? So number one, you become awake. Secondly, you take inventory. But here's a powerful thing. You have to partner with the right people. I feel that a lot of people, when they have a setback, they don't have the right people to partner with. So that's what I always wanted to become, and that's what I became. I wanted to be the person that somebody could link hands with and say, come on, Tim Story. You may not know everything, but you know how to get people From a setback to a comeback. I'm the partner, power, person. With anybody that I'm dealing with, I take them through those steps. you got to wake up, take inventory, partner with the right people. Now, when you partner with the right people, that means you're going to probably have to eliminate some people that are not the right people. And this is what I see with a lot of people that are in a setback. They need to cut some people back. Don't live in the mundane. Don't stay in the messy. Don't stay in the madness. But make room for the miracles. And I think that so many of us that we get so caught up in the mundane and then the mundane escalates to the messy and then it escalates to the madness which is the chaotic. Man, where's the magical? When we were kids, it was like Can we play? No, but you got to clean your room. But then can I play? But then you got to go to school. But then can I play? Remember, we were always looking for magic. The miracle mentality teaches you how to get through the mundane, the messy, the madness in all areas of your life and embrace this miraculous life that you've been called to live. The
7: basic misunderstanding is when people use the word life They are talking about their work, they're talking about their family, their relationships, their wealth, their money. No, these are all accessories, frills to life. Right now, this is the situation of the modern world. People have too many frills, but no skirt. There's no profoundness to life, too much decoration. Where will it go? It will only lead to more frustration. If you are a toddler, you have diaper problems. If you become an adolescent, you have hormonal problems. If you become middle age, middle age is a crisis. If you become old, it's horrible. Tell me which part of your life is good. Don't make everything into a problem. These are different stages of life. You can either ride that and enjoy it or be crushed by the same thing. This is the process of life. Physical life is a natural cycle. Everything that's physical is a cycle. Whether it's an individual atom or the cosmos, everything is cyclical, that's why physical is possible. So it all depends whether you're riding it or being crushed by it. Life is a cyclical process, you just have to learn to ride it. For that, everybody has the necessary faculties to do that. It is just that you have not kept yourself pleasant, you're trying to make yourself things that you're not. There was one young man running around like his uh, tail is on fire. Then I asked, hey, what are you up to? He said, Sadhguru, I want to earn a billion dollars, billion dollars. I said, you don't worry, tomorrow I'll give you a billion dollars. Really Sadhguru, you will give me a billion? Yes, I will give you a billion dollars. He had eight of his friends with him. I said, see, these eight guys, I'm going to give each one of them ten billion dollars and I'll give you one billion dollars. So, Sadhguru, Sadhguru, why they're getting ten... Array, your life's ambition was only to get one billion dollars. What are you complaining about? The problem is, if everybody else has it, you cannot enjoy it. So you have a sickness, you only enjoy other people's failures. Right from kindergarten school, you have been taught this, you must be number one. Then what must be the others? What must the other children be? They must be all below you. So you've always been taught that joy and happiness is always about enjoying other people's failures, other people's incapabilities. This is not joy, this is sickness. If you get rid of this sickness, everything will be fine. This is what human beings are suffering. Human beings are not suffering their bondage. Human beings are suffering their freedom. You are free to make yourself whichever way you want. See, no other creature on the planet is referred to as a being, only you are referred to as a being. That means you know how to be. If you know how to be, would you like to keep yourself in the heights of pleasantness or unpleasantness? Tell me. Pleasantness. So all the advertisements are about this only because people have given up how to be pleasant here they are trying to export themselves somewhere and their advertisements saying somewhere up there, there is a heaven where the utmost pleasantness will happen, peace will happen, joy will happen, bliss will happen, love will happen, everything is up there. This is because you have given up that you could be pleasant here (laughs) So if you export everything that's wonderful about a human being to another place, the world doesn't become better. We need to understand that whatever qualities that you're ascribing to God and whatever else that you've imagined in your mind, these are all qualities which are very essential for a human being to live a sensible life on this planet. So, everybody knows this, that they need to be pleasant. It is not an idea or a philosophy, it is a longing. Life is longing to be experiencing life pleasantly, isn't it? You want to be peaceful? See, it's like this. Pleasantness means what? If your body becomes pleasant, we call this health. Do you want it? Ask all your people who are uh, looking for inspiration, do they want health? You want health. If this body becomes very pleasant, we call it pleasure. That also you need. If your mind becomes yes. pleasant, we call this peace. Yes. yes. If it becomes very pleasant, we call it joy. That also is needed. If your emotions become pleasant, we call this love. If it becomes very pleasant, we call it compassion. If your energies, your life energies become pleasant, we call this blissfulness. If it becomes very pleasant, we call it ecstasy. If your surroundings become pleasant, we call it success. Only to create pleasantness in your surroundings, you need the cooperation of the people and the forces which are around you. But to create pleasantness of body, mind, emotion and energy is 100% your business. If this much everybody takes care of, then what to do in the world, we can see. If there's something to do, we will do. Otherwise, let's take a walk, let's climb a tree or go swim or just sit still. Do whatever the hell you want. But the important thing is, you'll have no need to do anything. If something is needed, you will do it. If nothing is needed, you can sit here joyfully. What's the problem?
1: When I was in high school, I remember running stairs one day and and one of my teammates, I would skip the last stair, I would just kind of stick my foot out and tap it. And she looked at me and she said, someone else is taking that stair today. If you want to be the best in the world, you have to know without a shadow of a doubt that you worked harder than anyone else in the world today. When you find something that you love and you do it as your work, you never work a day in your life. When you think about what you want out of life, where you wanna make your mark, you have to start figuring out who you are. Where can you be great? And, not, and when you do that, you have to put the blinders on. Don't look at anyone else because nobody else can tell you how to be you. And I think a lot of times that we try to go outside of what we're naturally drawn to, what we're naturally gifted at, and we try to find something else that doesn't necessarily fit our skill set or something that we don't have a passion for because we see someone else doing it. But each of us are uniquely made and, and, and we have talents and different things that we love. So for me, I jumped everywhere that I went. If I tried to compose a symphony, I would have struggled. <laughs> For me, it wasn't just the people who had amazing talent. I think that anybody could have amazing talent, but the people that took that amazing talent and actually cultivated it and did something with it. And so that's why I was attracted to Michael Jordan. He would have been amazing as a basketball player in and of itself, but his defined work ethic was unparalleled by anyone. And I heard about when he played in the NBA Finals with food poisoning, helping his team win, and how he never missed practice and I took that to heart as a youngster and I realized that I had to be relentless each and every day but once I made my first Olympic team I wasn't even thinking about what going to the Olympics would actually look like I was thinking about just making the team and immediately after making the team I was filled with joy but then a huge wave of emptiness came in and confusion like oh my gosh what's next And I understood that you had to start making new goals immediately once you achieved the ones that seemed so unreachable. And so being able to go to four Olympic games, win 12 US national championships, it was a consistent, repetitive action of setting goals over and over again. Some large, some small, but being a habitual goal setter is what I attribute to being able to have such longevity in this sport. So when I was learning about doping and the fact that other people were cheating I went back to my coach and I felt like I was at such a disadvantage and I said oh my gosh everyone's cheating there's no way that I could beat them and my coach sat me down and said this he said look you can't control what other people are doing all you can do is control what you are doing if you mentally tell yourself that everyone else is cheating you're already telling yourself you can't beat them so it's better for you to assume that they're not cheating and figure out how to beat them with your hard work and your work ethic. And so from the very beginning, I got amazing advice that put me on the right track to not so much focus on what other people are doing. It's easy to kind of give in to the excuses or it's easy to feel like, you know, look at an elite athlete and feel like there's nothing that you could take from their journey that you could apply to your own life. But there's solid principles that apply through every facet of life that genuinely start with kind of setting a goal, and sticking to it and just being accountable for what you say that you're going to do each and every day. After I watched that Olympic Games when I was four years old, I kind of think of it as like, okay, that was God's grace of giving me something to hold on to because at that time period, my mother met my stepfather. Um, He was a strong alcoholic, a strong football player who um, used my mom as his punching bag. And being a young girl, seeing my mom abused so violently um, left its mark on me. So going to school was my escape. I realized that education was the only way that I was going to make sure that I didn't live up, I didn't grow up in a household where my kids were wondering where their next meal was going to come from. I wanted to make sure that I put myself around people that didn't value alcoholism or drug abuse And I really started paying attention to the university system and seeing that when people genuinely put action to the point of wanting to change their lives, they went and dedicated themselves to education. And so that's what helped me find that I wanted to go to school too, and I I really started finding school as my sanctuary. It was a place where I could, you know, develop in athletics and sports, but also to train my mind to be an intellectual so that I wouldn't have to repeat these cycles of abuse in my own life. And I think that that, that's really what's catapulted me through all the different years of trials, tribulations. I dealt with homelessness and poverty growing up, domestic violence, growing up in a home with a lot of drug abuse and alcoholism. But I had that vision of going to the Olympics and I had that, that skill of jumping. I put those two things together and it was really the thing that pulled me through those difficult times. And I think that when people have those difficult times, you have to have something that, is, that brings hope and joy and, and has the power to propel you through difficult situations because each and every one of us has them, but we have to be able to see outside of it. And when we lose hope, that's when we feel like giving up. And I think sometimes we have this situation right in front of us, and it seems so big and so earth-shattering, and we feel it's just a huge stumbling block. Um, of us being who we want to be or being a contributor to society as a whole and I think that if we we stop making small minute issues into monumentous mountains in our life we will live a more fulfilled more happy life and so that is the best advice I had ever received
5: The coffee industry has developed this narrative that Arabica beans are superior and Robusta beans are inferior, which is simply not true because the, what makes it great, what makes it superior or inferior or good coffee or bad coffee is not inherent to the qualities of the bean, it's um, it's dependent on the production of the coffee, right? And so even though Arabica has been hailed as like the specialty coffee variety, there's also poorly grown Arabica around the world, right? And so this level of care that we've seen um, through the specialty coffee industry to elevate Arabica varieties around the world was not being offered to Robusta beans, but more specifically to Robusta farming communities. Part of our mission is to break down this really elitist Um, culture of coffee which says this is good and this is bad coffee for me when I build my business especially in the very beginning I didn't have the blueprint I didn't have the entire roadmap I had no idea what it looks like honestly but I just did really focus on what is the next step you need to achieve to get yourself to that next step right and that's how i approach building business i feel like sometimes um, we can get overwhelmed when we're like i don't know the whole picture i don't have the whole plan i've always entered um you know a project or a business without having the whole plan and i think that's really key to getting started and really key to figuring things out so just like a puzzle like i would just look for like that next puzzle piece that i needed to just capture and lay down. And once I picked it up and I laid it down, I connected it to what I was doing, and I figured out what the next piece of the puzzle I needed was, then I would move on to the next piece, right? And so that's how I've approached building the business from going from idea to action. And so uh, to be more specific, I had this idea, and I was like, well, what is the very first thing I need? I was like, I need to see if I can actually import coffee beans, right? I need to see if I can develop a direct trade relationship with a producer. And so I went to Vietnam and I visited my family and I asked my family, does anybody know anybody? And they're like, oh, you do. And like, they helped me strike up that first relationship. The next question was like, well, how do I bring coffee beans here? I start asking Google, how do you bring coffee beans to the United States? How do you import? And then Google tells you, well, you need this, you need to register the FDA, you need a customs broker, you need a freight forwarder. And then I'm like, what is a freight forwarder? And then you Google a freight forwarder, right? That's literally how I built the business. Um, I just asked a lot of questions. I asked Google a lot. I focused on finding one piece of the puzzle at a time. Once I found that piece, I'd lay it down and look for that next piece until eventually I had my first palette here, I had my bags here, I had everything ready to go, I had a website up, I had photos, and then I had a launch party. I did lots of random gigs, whether it was Freelancing as a writing counselor for college essays, you know, copywriting, um, writing articles. I did some some hospitality work. I was just like classic, brand new to New York, doing a million jobs. Yeah, I actually interned for you know at a, at a place in New York City in the beginning for free, for no pay, just to kind of build my network and um, meet people. And after doing that for about six months, um, you know I. I eventually started getting freelance gigs. They're all very, very small, you know. I also worked, worked I've worked in the service industry since I was in high school as a server and a host. So I also did that on the side. During those first few years post-college where I was working for another company full-time, I really built a structure Um, around my work life where I could dedicate my time off the clock to building my creative career so as soon as I was like quote unquote off the clock at 5pm at my daytime job or whatever I'd go straight into developing my creative projects and my creative projects included um, you know writing poetry or making chapbooks or making digital content or you know making new websites like I really treated my creative career during those years as like my second job, at just as if anyone would have like a double shift. I think for people who, you know, want to have a creative side hustle or they want to transition from like their day job to like a full-time creative career, just having the discipline to building out like, what does that transitional period look like? Some of the lessons that I learned from my first restaurant business was to get really clear on on why you're doing something was to get really clear on what you're doing and why you're doing something. And when it's no longer working, we have to reevaluate, right? I think there were lots of moments in my restaurant journey where things weren't really working and I felt like um, I didn't want to let it go. Have really clear boundaries with the people that you work with, um, especially if if they're your business partners, right? Um, In small businesses, we tend to have really intimate relationships and we're really in a lot of like the trenches together. However, remember why you're in a relationship in the first place, which is the business. So it's really important to put the needs of the business first. To not take things personally. Um, This was, I had that business in my 20s. Um, I'm a very different person now. I've had a lot of time to reflect and I think when things don't go, you know, the way I wanted them to or the way I expected them to, I would often take it personally. And this relates to what I was just saying of like in, in business it's it's never personal, right? In business it's always about what is the best thing for the greater collective here, which is everyone involved in the business, not just one individual's. Like being in my twenties, especially the part when I was in New York City and I was freelancing and you know, New York has like Such this, like, energy of like, you're we're all out here hustling, we're all trying to make it, right? I I was like really engulfed in the energy a lot, and I think I felt like really I felt like I was rushing a lot in my 20s, like rushing to make it, or like rushing to prove something of myself, or rushing to have something to show for myself, right? So, if I could, some of you know, a piece of advice I give my 20 year old self is. Don't be in a rush, you know? Enjoy the journey, enjoy the process, enjoy everything you're going through um, because it goes by really quickly, right? And, And then it gets a lot harder. So, yeah, that's what I'd say, don't be in a rush.
3: Once upon a time were my four favorite words as a little girl. Every night at bedtime, I would pull my covers over my chin, and wait for my mom to come by. After a few minutes of excitement, she would walk in, tuck me in tight, and coyly ask, Hmm, do we have time for a story tonight? Yes, yes, please mama, please read me a story. She would smile back at me as she knew of the beautiful moments we were about to spend together. And all those precious moments always started with those four magical words, once upon a time. Like many little girls of my generation, the first stories my mom told me about were of Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. Stories about these young ladies who faced several challenges in their lives. The way those original stories were told led little girls like me to believe that to be happily ever after, we needed to be rescued. Challenges and adversities are part of life, that we grow up in fairy tales or in real life. Like many of us, I had my share of them. I saw my cousin fight cancer, I struggled with the death of my father, and I had to roll up my sleeves after a car accident rendered me paraplegic. Of course, Like those heroines of my childhood stories, I was called to overcome those obstacles, follow the yellow brick road, back home to that sense we call normalcy. But somewhere along my journey to Emerald City or back home to my palace, I got stuck. I got stuck in the stories I told myself. Stories about this pitiful, ugly little duckling who couldn't manage life on wheels. If those stories were based on facts of my life, the way I recounted them always was from the stance of a powerless victim. Reinforcing how hopeless and helpless I had been feeling. Imagine the worst moments of your life when everything falls apart. Now imagine someone telling you over and over again how horrible this is. How useless you are. How your whole life is now scrap. In recounting our stories, we all wish to be the hero. But in doing so, we often forget about the one person, often hidden from view, that is as essential, if not more. The narrator. The narrator is like a great wizard. When the hero goes on its journey, the narrator observes and guides us through with a wider view, shaping how the story is being told, crafting the storyline to make us feel mad or sad or to make us laugh and feel happy. Now, the narrator doesn't change the plot line. He or she only tells the facts in a way that will lead us to the lessons learned.
0: My father Left school in the third grade to help out on the family farm, but just because he left school doesn't mean his education stopped. Mark Twain once said, I've never allowed my schooling to get in the way of my education. My father taught himself how to read, taught himself how to write, decided in the midst of Jim Crowism, as America was breathing the last gasp of the Civil War, my father decided he was going to stand and be a man. Not a black man, not a brown man, not a white man, but a man. He literally challenged himself to be the best that he could all the days of his life. I have four degrees. My brother is a judge. We're not the smartest ones in our family. It's a third grade dropout daddy. A third grade dropout daddy who was quoting Michelangelo when he was a cook at Cal Maritime. Saying to us, boys, I won't have a problem if you aim high and miss. But I'm going to have a real issue if you aim low and hit. You see, it takes knowledge and wisdom combined to grow your influence so that you'll make up an impact. You'll be a shipmate that others can count on. I learned that from a third grade drop, simple lessons. Lessons like these, son, don't judge people. The tendency of a person is to walk away from somebody that's different from them. You stay there and you get to know them. Never judge. Then he dropped Jonathan Swift on me, who said, vision is the ability to see the invisible. Don't judge. Another lesson from this third grade dropout. Son, you'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. My father had the breakfast and lunch shift here at the academy. He had to be at work at five o'clock. We lived on Louisiana Street, 15 minutes away. My mother said for nearly 30 years, my father left the house at 345 in the morning. One day she asked him, why daddy? He said, maybe one of my boys will catch me in the act of excellence. I wanna share two things with you. Aristotle said, you are what you repeatedly do. Therefore excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Don't ever forget that. The other thing I wanna share with you is Harvard Business Review, September 2004. The article is titled, Deep Smarts. Here's the thesis. Lecturing, what our universities are based upon is the worst kind of teaching method. That if you wanna get the intended message across, model the behavior. My daddy, A third grade dropout, a cook was modeling excellence for his boys, combining academic knowledge and old school wisdom. That's what makes an impact, an impact as you go all over the world. You're not interested in making a nice impression, you want to make an impact. Lesson number three, son, make sure your servant's towel is bigger than your ego. I want to remind you, cadets, of something as you graduate. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Pride is the burden of a foolish person. You'll never be a great chipmate. You'll never be a great executive. You'll never be a great teammate if it's all about you. Let me take you back to two days before Trina died. No hair because of chemotherapy, cadets. A tummy pooched out because of a liver no longer working. She weighed about 75 pounds. I'm in the kitchen so I can keep an eye on her in the family room. She's surrounded by pillows. Our then youngest son, Andrew, walks up with a shirt that he wants mommy to fold. And this is what I hear from Trina. Andrew, mama, not always gonna be there to help you. She was saying goodbye and I was so moved I waited for Andrew to leave and I walked over and I sat next to her on the couch. And as clearly as I'm talking to you today, these were some of her last words to me. She looked me in the eye and she said, it doesn't matter to me any longer how long I live. What matters to me most is how I live. Cadets, I've come here with honor, with bells on, to ask y'all one question a question that I was asked all my life by a third grade dropout. How you living? How you living? Every day ask yourself that question, how you living? Here's here's what a cook in the dining center would suggest, that you would not judge, that you would show up early, that you'd be kind, that you'd make sure that that servant's towel is huge and used, that if you're gonna do something, You do it the right way. That that, that cook would tell you this, that it's never wrong to do the right thing. That how you do anything is how you do everything. And in that way, you will grow your influence to make an impact. In that way, you will honor all those who have gone before you, who have invested in you, from teachers to grandparents to mom and dad. And when you combine that academic knowledge with that wisdom, oh my goodness, you will change the world. It is with great honor that I say all your life, look in those unlikeliest places for wisdom. Enhance your life every day by seeking that wisdom and asking yourself every night, how am I living? May God richly bless y'all. Thank you for having
6: me here.